what we do here is go back, 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 back. Welcome, welcome to The Hustle Sold Separately. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to doers, creators, entrepreneurs, hustlers, uh, CEOs, executives, uh, artists, people in and around the world that are really, they're in their thing, they're on their vibe, they're really building on, uh, you know, their craft. And, you know, you guys always hear me say this over and over and again, we don't glorify or glamorize and success because it's just, it's not overnight and uh you know uh, it's 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 all about the journey right and i'm grateful that every week uh we bring on guests that also talk about what are they experiencing in every new phase of their life what are they going through um what are they learning along the way um or what have they learned in whether it was their first venture their third venture their 40th venture it doesn't matter we're all human as you guys hear me say this all the time and uh, and that's really what's going on, right? Uh, and for those of you that are a little bit newer, because I know we've been we've been growing pretty steadily fast here recent as of recent. I uh, thank you so much for for tuning in. I'm Matt Gottesman. I'm the founder of this podcast, and you guys can easily connect with me at Matt Gottesman on Instagram if you want to kind of see some of the other ventures and other things that I'm a part of and what's going on. If you want to join in the conversation uh, at the intersection of creativity, culture, and entrepreneurship. You can easily check us out at, at HDF Magazine on Instagram. That's where it really all started. Of course, we've got the at Hustle Sold separately on Instagram as well, where you can keep along, uh, uh, hop along on that with us as well. You can reach out at any time. I, you guys know for the last seven years, I have answered every DM, text, response on the wall, whatever. It's all about community. Uh, and we're all in this together and, um, you're not crazy <laughs> for any of you that are out there that you guys know that this podcast is dedicated to all of you guys. You like your doers and your creators, and you probably think way outside the box and you're probably constantly trying new things and building things. And, you know, many of you are also actually in various stages of your companies. You're not crazy despite what the world <laughs> may tell you along the way. And definitely I, or any of the guests will also tell you, you know, keep thinking outside the box and keep pushing those boundaries. I've got another great episode I'm really, 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 really excited about, um, both for the guest and for the topics that we're going to be touching on. Uh, I've got David Cody, and he's the, exec- he's the executive chairman of Vertive Holdings Company, but he's also the former CEO of Honeywell, a very small company that many of you all around the world have probably <laughs> heard of, uh, you know, the Honeywell. And, uh, you know, he, he recently came out with a book, um, Winning Now, Winning Later, but there's so much basically what we've been discussing probably on this podcast and in life here for the last so many years are are the the elements that we we want to think about about our own self-awareness and thinking for the long term what are the activities that we're doing in the short term what are our behaviors that are are really aligning all of us to be working together you know how do we move that old paradigm narrative you know in some businesses uh where uh, you guys know how I feel about <laughs> corporate America sometimes, so I don't want to. I don't want to take it down that road too much. It, it's, uh, but I'm also very hopeful at the same time, as you guys know, because I'm seeing a lot of really great companies emerge that are doing things differently. And thank God for people like David Cody, who are also a part of that movement. You know, he. I'm going to give you a little bit of his background, uh, but he was very instrumental in doing that for Honeywell. Honeywell. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, you know, previous CEO. 
uh, grew the company's market cap from 20 billion to nearly 120 billion. You do not do that without <laughs> really thinking outside the box and trying new things and getting everybody on board, uh, delivering returns of 800% and beating the S&P by nearly two and a half times. That is not an easy thing to do. Uh, and now as an author, as I mentioned of his new book, Winning Now, Winning Later, how companies can win in the short term while investing in the long term. You guys know how I feel about the long game. I think it's like mentioned on every single podcast. Uh, and uh, Cody, you know, he, uh, he, he rails against today's trend of short-termism, <laughs> which is probably why we're going to become really good friends, and debunks the notion that pursuing long-term business growth must come at the expense of short-term gains. Let me repeat that debunks the notion that pursuing long-term business growth must come at the expense of short-term gains. And then um, drawing from his remarkable turnaround case study at Honeywell, winning now, winning later shows how to run any organization, division, or team, whether a nonprofit or for-profit with a new kind of rigor and balance. Uh, Dave, thank you for being on the show. I'm, I'm excited for this. Well, I'm, I got to say, I, I certainly love the intro and, uh, it, the music I thought was excellent. So I don't know if you change it uh, all the time, but it's, uh, I thought it was pretty darn good. And I liked um, your point about it doesn't have to be an overnight success because yes. certainly I was not an overnight success. And I oftentimes talk about the miracle of compounding, just doing mm. better, better than everybody else every single year. And if you do that over a long period of time, it's pretty remarkable where you get to. So I like that message also. Oh man, the, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you for the compliments. The music has been, uh, actually it's been around for a little bit. You know, I was wondering about changing it, but now maybe you've inspired me not to yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, I always say that the first question is always really like the first question, um, which is the context of like, how did we get here to today? Because you've done some remarkable things and I don't want people to think that it was overnight. Um, you obviously had a lot of learnings and experience along the way. You can go as far back as you want. Uh, I've had some guests go as far back as the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> some, some go as far back as, you know, kindergarten and, and college and, of course, you know, their first job, whatever it might be. But I'd love to give the, the, the audience a little bit more background on you and, and, and your you know, transition from pre-Honeywell into Honeywell and afterwards. Uh, okay, well, there could be a lot to talk about there because uh, I had a relatively... Uh, let's say uninspiring uh, beginning. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, uh, I was you know, grew up in New Hampshire. I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school. My dad had six months of high school. My mom had two days and had uh, got a secretarial degree. Uh, took her a year to do that. Not a lot of role models where I grew up, so I hated school. I was good at it. But I didn't really like it. I always, especially as I got older, uh, junior, senior year in high school, I felt like I was just wasting my time. Uh, as a result of that, it took me six years to get through college because I quit twice to go and do uh, other things, uh, none of which worked. <laughs> so I had an epiphany when I was about uh, 22 years old. I'd gotten married and we're living in an uninsulated, unheated third floor apartment in New Hampshire. So, yes, it was cold in the winter. <laughs> and the first month, uh, my wife comes home and says uh, she's pregnant. I said, no, OK, well, how's that possible? You're taking the pill. And she said, well, it just happens. Uh, OK. And the fourth month, she said uh, she couldn't work anymore either. And I was an hourly employee running a punch press nights at a GE factory. 
and did the math and found out we were spending two bucks more a week than I was making. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank. And I remember looking at it saying, okay, so I got 50 weeks to sort this out. And I was just scared to death. And I tell my oldest son, the reason I'm successful is because he scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> That's true. So I, I quit smoking cigarettes. I started exercising. I went back to school and worked nights at the same time. And uh, he, he's, uh, I remember taping up the windows because the breeze used to come in. I was afraid my, my son was going to die just because I was a screw off. And that really motivated me. I, mm. As you might imagine, I did pretty well that year in school. I eventually landed a job at uh, GE and as an exempt employee. Took me, I spent 25 years at uh, GE in a variety of manufacturing, finance, uh, general management type jobs, culminating in running uh, major, the major appliance business in Louisville, Kentucky. Then I went to TRW. Uh, the Cleveland-based company as a COO and eventually CEO. Then in 2002, went to Honeywell, and it was a pretty, uh, let's say, as bad as things looked externally, I can just promise you it was significantly worse internally. But we figured it all out. Uh, I was not considered destined for success. In fact, I can remember on a one of the business news programs, one of the announcers said, well, we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, we're not sure this is the guy who can do it because mm. he wasn't the first, didn't make it to the first tier in the GE succession race. And we know he wasn't the first choice to run Honeywell. So prospects probably aren't very good. And that was my beginning. <laughs> and you could see how things turned out. So yeah, we figured it out along the way. Yeah, you know, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I, and I think it's important for a lot of people to hear that because everybody everybody has to see that you everybody has a starting point and it's usually not glamorous at all. <laughs> you know, it, it's Well, this one wasn't. I, I can tell you I gave a um, commencement speech at uh, for the University of New Hampshire, my alma mater in 2011. And uh, it ended up by the way being picked by NPR as one of the 350 best ever going back to 1774, which made me feel good. Mm -hmm. But it was basically just, as I told my uh, two boys, uh, said it's basically just the advice I've been giving you guys for years for free. You just, hopefully you'll listen. But it was ironic that I'm giving my, starting to give my speech and, you know, the audience starts the beach balls bouncing around and you think, oh, okay, so nobody's going to listen, but I uh, give my speech. And I opened it with, it took me six years to get through college because I hated school. I got a 1.8 the second semester of my junior year. And after my sophomore year, I was called in front of the assistant dean of students and told I would no longer be allowed to live on campus because I was a general troublemaker. There was <laughs> no one big thing they could point to, but she said wherever I was, there seemed to be trouble, so they didn't want me on campus any longer. And you can tell I'm still kind of proud of that one. I can. But the beach ball stopped and people started to listen. And it was almost like, oh, okay, so this isn't a guy who made it through school in three years with a 4-0. He's more like us. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. said, yeah, that's exactly right. 
how how when did when did Honeywell come in? Like what? How was that? I'd love to know your thoughts and before entering into that era of uh, becoming the CEO of, of Honeywell and what that whole journey was like in terms of uh, it really also what inspired the whole, you know, um, moving away from this short termism type of thinking while understanding the importance of what you can do in the short term to play the long game. I would love to hear a little bit what happened with the with the Honeywell journey. You mean in terms of the uh, short term, long term? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, how did you? Um, when did you officially start with Honeywell, and how did that? How did they approach you? Like, how did that whole thing, unf- um, like, come to fruition for you to become the CEO? Uh, well, it actually happened pretty quickly. I uh, I had become the CEO of TRW like uh, six months earlier. Mm-hmm. After a uh, there was a tumultuous time there. Also, I had set something up where. If I didn't become CEO by a certain date, they'd have to pay me a large sum of money. And I did that because they had fired the three previous successors the CEO had. And I thought, okay, this is a way of making sure that um, it doesn't happen because even if they fire me, it'd be so embarrassing. uh, They won't do it. Well, they darn near fired me because the (laughs) CEO... I uh, had uh, his own set of issues mm. and um, they darn near listened to him again. And I, and I think before finally dawning on him how embarrassing it would be to fire the fourth one. So I at, in the CEO and chairman job at TRW and I get a call from uh, Tom Neff at Spencer Stewart saying, hey, you know, I'd like you to think about uh, taking the CEO Honeywell job. And I said, well, um, no, not really. I just got this job. I probably shouldn't do it. Um, and he, he said, well, tell you what, I'll send you a bunch of stuff. And if you could take a look at it and just get, get back to me. And I said, yeah, sure. Okay. So a month goes by. It's like second week of January. And Tom calls and says, geez, you know, you never call me back. I said, well, you never sent me the stuff. So I figured you'd change your mind. And he said, oh, geez. Okay. No, that was a mistake. So he sent it to me. And you know, I did a lot of reading. I watched the uh, videos of uh, their uh, share owner, uh, some of the sh- investor presentations. And I said, geez, this actually is pretty intriguing. I think I could probably do something with this. And it was only a month later I was in the job. You know, it's it's interesting. You, you really can't run from what's for you, nor can you, <laughs> nor can you push away what's not. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> it's funny, yeah. you know, I've kind of I've kind of adapted that mantra over the last few years. Like you really can't run like whatever's for you is really <laughs> it's going to it's going to keep trying to get to you. And so you go, you know what, maybe I should take a, a crack at this. And, you know, uh, and so that was around like around the 2002 time frame, correct? Yeah, that was uh, February 2002. Yeah. And then you made a very interesting run. And for anybody that's, you know, listening, how did you take a company from 20 billion to 120 billion cap? Um, what were some of the changes you need, you saw that need to be made to be able to achieve something like that? And, you know, some of the things along the way that inspired you to eventually write this wonderful book, <laughs> which we're going to start getting into the, these, these topics of short termism and things like that. And, and I, and I love, uh, you know, before we jumped on this, you know, some of the things that you were talking about, how, um, you know, even, even when you were like, these classes were being conducted and you were saying that, you know, 
I'll, I'll let you tell more of that, but are you saying like, you know, there's two things. One is to, to get results in the right way. And the second is to be self-aware and a learner. Um, and I'd love for you to also, we'll, we'll get to that part, but I'd love to hear kind of how you came into Honeywell and was like, all right, I think I want to make some changes here. And how was that received? And how did you, how did you initiate a lot of these changes? Well, interestingly, uh, the path forward was not apparent immediately. <laughs> and you'll find this interesting, but as the CEO of the company, for the first four and a half months I was there, I was instructed by the board to not spend any time on the financials and just learn the businesses. Mm. And when I would ask one of the finance guys something as innocuous as, how's the quarter going? They would literally tell me, I have been instructed not to answer that question from you. And I'm the CEO. Interesting. But I figured, okay, it's just four and a half months. I'll become chairman and can do it then. Well, when I became chairman and could now see everything, and I ended up with a significant earnings miss right off the bat, very embarrassing, because uh, I found out how just unhealthy the whole system was. Mm. And I can remember uh, asking the, we ended up with, a, I went out with a lower number against all advice from the finance guys. And then three weeks later, they came to me to say that it was going to be 20% less than that. And that's just for a six month period. And I called all the business leaders and, and I asked the finance guys, how can this be? It's only been three weeks. And they said, well, you're letting them all off the hook. And I said, in, in three weeks, how could they possibly sell less or spend more that fast to generate a 20% earnings decline? So I called all the business leaders and then everything became a lot more clear. Uh, we just had a, a totally unhealthy system. And I went back and looked at it, and over a decade, we'd only generated 69 cents of cash for every dollar of earnings that we printed, which gives you an idea of the extent of the bookkeeping mm -hmm. that was uh, going on. And I just said, okay, I got to do a complete overhaul here. We got to scrub this thing down to the foundation first, because accounting is your primary information system. If your accounting is not correct, you will make bad decisions because you either think you're making more or losing more. I mean, you just don't just don't know. And if you're not generating cash, that's an even bigger problem. So the first thing was to scrub all the accounting. The second piece was we had significant, as in billions, of unrecognized liabilities for asbestos and environmental because we were a hundred year old chemical company. Mm. And I ended up learning that our strategy for dealing with environmental issues was fight them in court until you lose and then pay. <laughs> and I thought, this is not good. Uh, so first of all, I'm a product of the sixties and whether that's in vogue or not at any point in time, <laughs> I, I know I don't wanna, it's not how I wanna perceive myself. Right. right. It's not consistent with the things that we do as a company where we can save energy, we uh, preserve the ozone, we help the defense department. As we're, on, we're on the side of the angels with all the stuff we do. Not great for us. And then finally, I said, you know, all this stuff is going to cost more over time, not less. And I didn't want to pass on to my successor 
the kind of problems that I was having to deal with. And I said, I, I'm going to address all this stuff and, you know, kind of get it off the decks. Then the last one was we had a significantly underfunded pension plan by billions again. And I thought, geez, we've made commitments to all these people. That money needs to be there. Uh, I need to do something about it. So this first year and a half was really just, man, Brutal. fixing all kinds of stuff. And I'd say that's where a lot of it was, um, you know, my original thoughts were, oh, geez, you know, okay, this is a lot worse than anybody ever th even thinks. And I need to just get to the bottom of all this and fix it. And once I had those fixes going, then I said, okay, we got to fill up the pipeline, whether it's new products, geographies, services, process work. We've got to find a, a path forward that gets us growing out of all this stuff. Because if we don't grow, then these problems just kill us forever. And I started investing money in all those areas. And I always called it seed planting. And the, some seeds come mm -hmm. up in a year, some in five years. But you got to be doing the seed planting. Now, I did that at the same time saying, okay, I can do that. But I can't tell investors, hey, uh, man, it's gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you for the next four years. But then it's going to be great. Because investors say, great, see you in four years. They just all leave you. Mm. And if you're a CEO in that kind of environment, that's not a long-term recipe for success. If you're running a factory and you tell your boss, hey, it's going to be great in four years, well, he'll probably get somebody else in there. So that's where I got to, got to find a way to do both. And how do I make sure that I generate short-term results that are good enough while at the same time taking any excess that I perceive above that and reinvesting it. So we took R&D, for example, from 3% of sales to about 6% of sales over the 15 years. We took um, global uh, sales outside the U.S. from about 44% to about 55%, uh, significantly increased the number of software engineers that we had implemented huge process changes to get at staff costs to really improve our factories with basically the adoption of the Toyota production system. And once I got that going, it took me about, I'd say, five years because of the size of the company. We were $22 billion in sales or so. It took me about five years to finally get to that point where things started to pay. And if you look at our stock price performance, for example, and you just look at a 16-year chart, you'll see the first five years or so, we slightly outperform the market. In the subsequent 10 or 11 years, we crush it mm. because all that stuff finally came together. And that's how um, I've kind of got to thinking about short-term, long-term. And when it came to writing this book, one of the things that bothered me was I keep kept reading about short-termism, the problem is short-termism, and everybody makes it sound like you choose one or you mm. choose the other. And I always thought that was a specious argument that makes it sound like it's mutually exclusive. And there was this fundamental that I ran Honeywell with, a concept 
that said success is about achieving two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. And I had a, several examples. I would say, do you want low inventory or do you want great customer service? Do you want high prices and margin rates or do you want terrific volumes? Do you want the people closest to the action empowered for quick decisions or do you want good control so nothing bad happens? Do you want low G&A costs or do you want great internal customer service? In every case, the answer is you want both. You want things right and fast. You want both. So the same is true when it comes to short-term, long-term. So it took a lot of time to try to write down how do you go about doing that. And I oftentimes said that most business books I'd ever read would have made great pamphlets, that it's 10 pages of concept and 250 pages of stories that basically say the same thing, so you can fly through them. And I wanted something more substantive than that. I wanted it much more of a, how do you actually do some of these things? So that's probably enough for me for well, you know, one soliloquy there, Matt. So I probably ought to let you ask me another question. No, 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 no. I, actually, I thought it was, it was fantastic. I was writing actually a lot of notes when you were, um, when you were speaking. Uh, there, was a lot, there was a lot that was going on in there. And, and actually, I thought what was interesting was that by not telling them it's going to be four years but just you know taking care of things in the quote-unquote you know in the short term and getting enough results i felt like they were giving you more and more leeway to be like oh he knows what he's doing and so you're not so you're, you're allowed you know you're, you're getting the confidence from them uh that he knows what, that you know what you're doing while at the same time planning for where you're where you're heading but dealing with what you've got going on now to like fix it and i thought that that was also very key because a lot of times you know i, I learned from my father who, who recently passed and he would always say sometimes you have to take a couple steps back look at the big picture of of everything that's going on and plug the holes like figure out where to make the fixes where to where to take care of the things um that help build out the infrastructure that can sustain for where you want to go. Yep. And you clearly, <laughs> you clearly handled a lot. Was, you know, when you said that you were recognizing an unhealthy system, all right, you started looking for some of the gaps, including the bookkeeping and then scrubbing everything down, especially with accounting, um, you know, the billions in unrecognized liabilities, uh, some of the environmental issues. And, and, and what I thought was interesting was that by taking care of the problems, um, you are in the short term gaining the confidence from the board, but you, it's almost like instead of asserting, um, you know, I think a lot of times people come in and say, we're going to make some drastic changes and here's what's going to happen. And it puts people off. I feel like you kind of came in and said, Hey, I, I found some things and I'm just going to show you, <laughs> you know, and, and here's, well, uh, here, I, I, I oh, I'll have to modify it uh, a bit because Please uh, do. the other thing I would add yeah. was, uh, that I couldn't trust my board and I couldn't trust my staff, uh, three of whom had interviewed for my job and not gotten it. Okay, now let's, now we're getting the real there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, with the board, when I first explained to them what I was finding on the accounting side, one of the, he wasn't the lead director, but he was kind of an acknowledged lead director, pulled me aside and said, Hey, you know, all that stuff about the finances and so on, we don't want to hear any more about that. That's that's your issue to sort out. Hmm. Uh, don't bring it up at the board anymore. 
you know, I, you, <laughs> okay. So now I can't trust anybody. And at the same time, I had investors saying stuff like, uh, why aren't margin rates going up faster given sales growth? And mm. I'd have to go through that same argument all the time and say, well, uh, the, I got to fill up the pipeline. There's a bunch of seed planting I got to do. So I'm not giving everything. I'm investing a lot. So it took a fair amount of perseverance there in the beginning before all the good stuff started to show up and people bought into it. You know, like you said, we did get there. Yeah. You know, let's unpack that a little bit because that was part of how do you deal with sometimes the self-sabotaging of companies um, because of people's egos and fears and, um, you know, I want it this way. I didn't get it that way. And how do you how did you move them out of that mode and in and into kind of like just into into this more growth oriented um trajectory because I, that's 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 um what's the word i'm looking for uh very hard no, it's very hard and very <laughs> i was going to say very noble of you because like because that takes some that takes a lot of patience because um you know egos are egos and we don't i don't have time for the ego i i only have the time to to fix things and get things moving and and working together you know but i i did learn from a higher eq how to understand where they're at and communicate in a way that it's like all right i get you i got i'm giving you the space to be exactly who you are i totally understand who you are let's have a conversation and a, a mutual understanding in some capacity so we can get things moving but that's not easy <laughs> for most people no, uh no it is not and uh i guess a couple of perspectives the the first one uh to just to get back to something you mentioned about being able to take a step back uh one of the things that i did early on and this ended up helping me in fact i ended up doing it for the whole 16 years is that it's very easy to become what i call a victim of your calendar where there's just so much stuff to do every day that you're just kind of doing stuff and except for those rare moments where maybe if you're sitting in the tub at some point if you have the time maybe you think a little bit uh, it's very easy for leaders not to spend the time thinking as opposed to doing and acting and i thought donald rumsfeld love him or hate him had this great line i thought that said beware of letting the urgent get in the way of the important mm. and one of the things that I did is I started having what I call my blue book exercises. And my blue book was just this little blue notebook that I had. And about every three or four months, I would allocate uh, half a day or a full day to just thinking. And it could be at my desk, could be if I was on the road and I said, okay, I'll just stay at the hotel or whatever. But I would just spend time thinking. I might ask for some documents ahead of time just to kind of stimulate thought. But I just start doing things like thinking through products, portfolio, people, organization, countries, process. And I would just kind of let my mind semi-wander, let's say. And I just kind of write down, usually on a page, maybe sometimes a page and a half, are the things that would dawn on me that these are things I ought to go do. And I would do that every three, four, six months. 
And man, that helped me a lot. It's where um, our Honeywell operating system came out of, functional transformation came out of, how we were going to approach uh, globalization. In every case, it came out of those times where I just thought about things. The other thing I found separately now, um, because I couldn't trust my board or staff, it made me a better leader. Interesting. Because I had to start running meetings differently. And you grow up in a big company and uh, everybody's used to the leader saying, okay, uh, here's the problem. Here's what I think we ought to do about it. Uh, what do you all think? And, you know, some people participate, some people don't. And in the end, you pretty much do what the leader wanted to do. And given the kind of people I was dealing with and the circumstances, that made me uh, extra cautious. So what I started doing was not letting people know where I was coming from in the meeting. <laughs> and I would just talk about the issue and say, you know, do everybody agree or do you, what do you think? And then we started the conversation. And of course, I might have an idea about where I wanted things to go. But if somebody said something that disagreed with my thoughts, even though nobody knew what they were, I would take that point of view and say, well, why wouldn't that be true? And when somebody would say something that did agree with me, I had to be very careful not to say, oh, yeah, I think she's got it. But instead say, geez, I'm, you know, would that be true? Or, you know, what would be the downside of that? And then I made sure that every single person weighed in. So if there were 10 people in the room, I made sure I called on each single person because introverts and extroverts participate differently. Right. And then when we got done, I would ask each, before I said anything, I would ask each person what they thought I should do. And I would start with the most junior person, which is fascinating to watch because what's the first thing that happens when you call on a junior person? They look at their boss. <laughs> So and true. then the first thing the boss goes to do is respond for them. And I would always stop and say, no, no, I'll get to you. I promise. I want to know what this person thinks. And I would go all around the table, all the way up to the most senior person. And then I would make my decision and explain it to everybody. Because for those who say disagree with your decision, there's a tendency to think, well, if you don't agree with me, then you're not listening. And say, no, those are two separate things. And by explaining it, I'd be letting him know I did listen. I just disagree, and here's why. Well, I found myself making better decisions. And I came up with this line that I end up still using. It said, your job as a leader is to be right at the end of the meeting, mm. not at the beginning of the meeting. You don't get measured on whether the idea was yours. You get measured on whether you made good decisions or not. So... Kind of put your ego aside, and it's tough to do when somebody gets credit for an idea you already had because you weren't the first one to say it, but you end up making much better decisions, and that's what you get measured on. So I tried to run my meetings uh, differently. It made a big difference. You know... <laughs> I want you to just go into like every organization around the world <laughs> and start training, <laughs> training these companies. Uh, but what was interesting is you let everybody be heard. Yep. So their ideas, right or wrong, it doesn't matter, but they, they had a say and they felt heard. And I think that that increases the overall morale 
of an individual um, and you made it safe to where they're not being judged for being right or wrong. They're being heard for possible uh, other angles that you may have or have not thought of. Well, I think in 16 years uh, that I was there, I don't think there's a single person that would ever say uh, they felt vilified, ostracized, put down in any way for ever saying anything that disagreed with what it was I ended up doing. Because I wanted everybody, to your point, to feel very safe in terms of what they said and knowing that I truly did want to hear what they had to say. And the thing that I would uh, add to what you just said is it ends up being really important to understand how introverts and extroverts participate differently. And I tend to be um, a slight extrovert. So if somebody says, okay, so what do you guys think? If I'm in the group, I you know raise my hand. Sure, I'll tell you what I think. Well, not everybody's like that. Right. You find that there's a lot of people who the wheels are spinning like crazy, but until you actually call on them, for example, or say, hey, what do you think? They're not going to speak up. And when they do, you find yourself saying, wow, that was pretty good. I'm glad, you know, glad I called on that person. I'd also make a point of looking around the table just when somebody was talking just to see the reactions, because it's really surprising what you get from facial expressions. And oh, yeah physical movements that give you a sense that, oh, you know, maybe not everybody agrees with what this person's saying. They may be loud and maybe articulate and maybe forceful, but that doesn't mean they're right. There's <laughs> other people who disagree here. You know, um, it's interesting. I remember when I used to be an extreme extrovert. <laughs> and then and then I realized when that got me into trouble after a while, um, to shoot from the hip, and then uh, I became what they call a social introvert. Uh, I, I absolutely I love people. Um, I just I became more of a. It's probably not that so much as a social introvert as much as kind of the way you you put it. It's it's just listen to everybody else, um, be an active and present listener, and um, be open to being asked uh, to give my thoughts when you know when appropriate, etc. And, uh, yeah, you know, so it, it's, but it's interesting and you're absolutely right, by the way, uh, if you pay close enough attention to people's body language, they reveal everything, <laughs> whether you use it for poker or not, but <laughs> people reveal everything. I, I love when I see people, if they get the gloss over look, especially, uh, cause I'm, my whole thing is in technology, my whole background is in tech, especially when I, I deal with, um, tech transformation <laughs> and the moment I see a person's face in technology, I'm like, you know what, let me just give you the front side business side of like that let's talk returns let's talk <laughs> all this stuff and uh we'll save the sexy nerdy stuff for me and my the teams and everybody over here you know <laughs> um but it's but you're absolutely right it's it's a it's a great gauge to figure out where do you need to make adjustments in communication a lot of times like oh okay i'm, I'm either losing their interest i'm gaining their interest oh they seem excited they don't seem excited they're not engaged i think they're getting it no they're not getting it I think it's just a great temperature check for, you know, what's going on with an individual, especially in a room like that. Um, question for you. Can, yeah. there, can there be too many leaders? 
in the, <laughs> too many too many cooks in the kitchen because I, I I know that you probably touch on this and I, I want to ask yeah. that because there's <laughs> it's, it's funny you bring that one up because that's uh that's one of my hot buttons oh nice <laughs> and um, just to give you a perspective at Honeywell uh, when we were a twenty two billion dollar company we were uh, by uh, considered by investors to be a lean company a leanly run company and think of it this way is we had uh, uh, what we called executive band and above. So think of it as the leaders of the company. When we were a $22 billion company, we had 740 leaders. Mm. Uh, 16 years later, when we were a $42 billion company, we had 650 leaders. So we almost doubled the size of the company, yet reduced by about 15% the number of leaders that we had. Hmm. And the reason I did that was uh, twofold. One, uh, I, I do believe that uh, fewer leaders just makes it, makes it easier for everybody to operate. That, uh, so I, I actually should start with the first one. That, if you have leaders, they add cost because they need an assistant and they need a staff. And uh, it sounds like whatever they're doing is great work. So you want to support it. But the second one is, and this is particularly bad if you hire good people into those jobs, is they find stuff that you look at and go, wow, that really does need to be done. And it ends up involving other leaders. So you end up with all these leaders basically doing work to support other leaders and nobody's focusing on the customer. Mm. They're all kind of working for each other. Yep. And I always figured the fewer leaders you had, the greater the chance that a lot of that stuff that sounds really important or could be really good, just you just don't do it. And instead you focus on the stuff that really does matter, like great product, great service, focus on the customer, you stand a much better chance of that happening. I think focusing on the, oh, sorry, did I cut you off? Nope. Oh, I, I, uh, I think focusing on the customer is such a Zen-like thing to do because you learn so much from their input, their feedback, the data. And on top of that, it makes you master your craft and your output so much stronger because you're so focused on their experience and their, their, their um, relationship with you and uh, you know how they use what you deliver and how can you make it better. And ironically, you can make a million mistakes, but because you care about them so much, they just love you and keep coming back for more and more and more that it, it just forces you into a, a, a place of um, doing and intentional work. I, I mean, it could just be my, 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 own, my own take, but I, I've, just, I've just noticed that when you really are focused truly on the product and the delivery to the intended people and how that is well as received, and then, of course, the feedback coming back in so you can keep doing it more and more and more, you're, you're less in the drama <laughs> and the yeah. you know and the and the all the the noise and then the distractions all this stuff because you're so focused on how do we make this better and how do we all work together to make it better and of course how do we also um 
you know, do it very efficiently and profitably, um, not at the cost of anything, but at the, the growth of everything, right? So yeah, I uh, couldn't agree more. And uh, I should have said one of the other things that we were dealing with when I got to Honeywell was uh, warring factions. We had three separate uh, organizations that have been brought together, Legacy Honeywell, Legacy Allied Signal, Legacy Pitway, mm. all with very different cultures, all of whom thought the other two were idiots. <laughs> and trying to pull all that together, uh, instead of saying, okay, well, these guys are right about this, these guys are right about that, uh, what we did is focus on the customer and say, all our discussions will focus on what is right for the customer. Because as a result of that, you end up taking a lot of the emotion out of it. You end up taking out the, yes. well, he's right or she's wrong. <laughs> you end up with, a, okay, no, 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 really, what's the right thing to do for the customer here uh, beyond any of that? Second point I'd make is um, there's a line I use a lot, and it's in the book, is that the trick is in the doing. Yes. And it's that we all know the same stuff, read the same books, talk to the same people. And I'll give you an example is how many interviews have you done where the interviewer said, "Nah, you know, really, we don't care about the customer because they got to buy our stuff and it's really not a problem. So we, we don't spend any time with them. Everybody says the same thing. Customers, critical, customer service, important. So then you go to the next step and say, well, if everybody knows it's that important, why is there so much variability in how good people are at it? <laughs> That's such a good point. Yeah. And you come down to, oh, you know, how we actually do this yeah. and what we're actually concentrating on. Maybe we ought to really make sure we understand exactly what we're doing here and what truly is important to the customer and then make sure we actually do that. And it's surprising how few people take that step. Hmm. You know, it is surprising. I, I wonder if it's just a multitude of, are they, is it an ego thing? Is it a, an emotional thing? Is it a, I'm worried what they'll say? Because I always find it fascinating that you would ever be worried about what a customer has to say so long as you're talking to the right intended customer and you're getting its feedback. It's a signal. And a signal tells you, change this, don't change that, add this, remove this, you know, it, it, and how helpful is that <laughs> to know that you don't, you don't have to know technically where you're fully going because the customer is going to help you do that. <laughs> well, it's, uh, while I agree with you, I would also say uh, the bigger your organization gets, the easier it is to become more internally focused. Ah, uh, interesting. Yes. And... Even with, I don't know, startup companies, and I remember reading the story in Inc. Magazine, God, 30 years ago or so, maybe 35 years ago, uh, about a guy who was starting a beer company, one of those when craft beers were just beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he was talking to his dad on the phone, and his dad said, so uh, what are you doing today? And the guy said, well, um, you know, I'm... Uh, going to get a new computer because I need to start laying everything out on my computer so that I can manage this. And his dad told him, well, 
shouldn't you visit a customer first to find out if they want any of the stuff you're going to be making? <laughs> and this guy said it was a revelation for him. And when I read it, I said, it is a revelation. It is much more, it's much easier to just focus on those things that we think we can control as opposed to taking the time to go out there. It's a pain in the neck to go out there. You got to set up a meeting. You don't know exactly where it's going to go or what it's, what you're going to learn, but you darn well better do it. And I had some just terrific, uh, learnings in uh, Honeywell. And I used to make a point of getting out there to visit customers with uh, salespeople. And I would, I'd spent five to 600 hours a year on the plane. So that's like 23 days, 24 hours a day spent in the air. Mm. And a big part of that time was with sales guys just going to visit customers to see what they'd have to say. So I was at a one of the air shows with uh, some of our aerospace guys. And they said, Oh, geez, you know, we got this customer we'd like you to meet with us because we'd like them to sign uh we think they'd be a great candidate for this new uh product that we're developing i said okay great so we get into the meeting and i'm with the ceo and i there's a question i always open every customer meeting with uh, and i say well how are we doing with uh what we're already providing you and the customer says ceo said well you know i'm really glad you stopped by in two weeks, we will have finalized the lawsuit that we're preparing against you for non-performance on the development program. Oof. And uh, as you might imagine, I'm, my face just kind of stood still. I looked over at the business president. He didn't know about it. I looked at the product manager. He didn't know about it. Looked at the sales guy. He didn't know about it. So we had... Uh, this customer getting ready to sue us for non-performance and nobody who should have known did know. Mm. And th so this whole organization was just so focused on their kind of internal knitting that they weren't getting out there to actually find out. So as you might imagine, we got that address. I begged, absolutely begged for time and said, I promise you, I will fix this, which we did and avoided the lawsuit. But we started to change how we did things in that business to make sure that we really did know where customers were coming from. It's a very easy thing to have happen. Well, and, and the fact that you were able to alleviate the situation, make it better, caused a chain reaction of respect probably from that customer, caused um, an internal dialogue of here's what can happen if we don't do these types of things. Thank God that we didn't deal with a lawsuit in that, you know, for that particular situation. And here's what we can now do to mitigate that moving forward. So, you know, again, that input from the customer, uh, while sometimes brutal. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and it's not to say, you know, I will be the last person to ever say we were perfect at it or that we wouldn't uh, suffer reverses when uh, we'd find a business that stopped paying attention to it. But the thing I can say is that we were a darn sight better than we had been when I, when I got there. Mm, that's amazing. It's, it, it just requires, you can't ever take it for granted. It's really surprising how quickly it can slip. Relationships, you can never take, business or personal, you can never take them for granted. Nope. <laughs> you know? Um, nope. And so now with, with uh, Winning Now, Winning Later, I want to talk about the book. What have been some of the... Uh, 
the other trigger points <laughs> that you address in the book that, you know, have been something that you've been very passionate about uh, in, you know, some of the experience that you've, you've garnered along the way? Well, um, I mean, I've broken it into a number of different uh, chapters. Uh, the first one is uh, banishing intellectual laziness. <laughs> and it, it really kind of gets to this idea of two seemingly conflicting things and how you need to start thinking differently uh, about things. But then I also touched on a number of areas that are important to me and that I think were essential to our success. Uh, you touched on one of them, culture. And there's a lot of, we used to call them culture vultures out there who uh, yep. want to come in and help you and do all this stuff. And I always said, no, nah, this is something we got to, we got to do on our own. And I kind of digressing a bit. I can remember uh, as we were starting to develop, what do we want our culture to be? Uh, we had one guy talk about, says, you know what we need is some morale building programs. We need to kind of get out there and kind of boost morale. And I told him, no, I'm not going to spend a penny on doing any of that stuff. Cause the one thing that will boost morale is for people to feel that they are part of a winning team. Hmm. And if we can just start winning and doing better than all our competitors, that does more to make people feel good about where they are than any posters or cheerleaders that we uh, put out here. There's no event that's gonna supplant success. Success will be the sort of thing that uh, builds morale. I also had another one when uh, we were trying to establish what did we want our culture to be and we had like 10 behaviors that i wanted to develop we ended up with 12 when we went through kind of the group exercise kind of joke that god only needed 10 commandments to fix the world but we needed 12 to fix honeywell <laughs> <laughs> that being said we had 12 and i can remember one of my uh one of the guys who'd actually interviewed for my job said why are we wasting our time on this stuff when we've got all these strategic issues that we need to make decisions on? And I told him at the time, I said, look, I can make all the strategic decisions you want, but if nobody does them because we don't have the culture to support implementation and execution, then it's not going to matter. We're going to feel better because we made decisions, but nothing's going to change. So, I spent a lot of time on culture and people and meetings and that kind of thing. Process is another big focus of mine. And I always liked uh, uh, being able to describe it as any organization, any business is really just a collection of processes. And most processes end up being cross-functional in some way. And every process can be made more efficient and more effective. So figuring out how to get the right kind of process focus that actually improves your process, worth a lot. Then I spend time on portfolio, whether it's a portfolio of products or a portfolio of businesses. Got a chapter on how do you do acquisitions, basically how do you turn acquisitions into a process. Hmm. Then I talk about transition and talk about uh, how to manage in a recession and end up with a kind of a big takeaway in the epilogue with some stories. You're like the business Yoda. 
<laughs> is that is that too unprofessional? I don't know. We can say whatever we want on this podcast, anyways. But <laughs> uh, well, I, I appreciate the compliment. Uh, but I said my big thing was I did not want to just write a pamphlet. I yeah. wanted to write something that twenty years from now people could still pick up and go, "Wow, this is really still good. This is still useful." It's well, uh, and, and so I wanted something where every page had something of use to somebody. You can't do it all, but that people would get, there'd be enough ideas in there that there would always be something that would resonate with whatever somebody was facing. Well, and I think that the topics you chose too are very timeless, right? I mean- I think so. Right? I I really do. I I think 20 years from now, people will still be talking about all those same things. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk about culture and community and building morale and- how do you, how do we build momentum? You know, because you mentioned that su- success does help build morale. You're absolutely right. And when momentum, when we're winning, it 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 prompts a how can we keep bettering ourselves? How can we keep going? How you know? It, it, and and you know the fact that you're asking like who do we want to be? Um, and processes, by the way, has been something that I've really really come to really enjoy the last couple years when I realized how if everything can be put into a system, we don't lose the personalization of it because, you know, it still needs humans to run things. But if everything gets into a process and we can make it more and more efficient, um, the, the more understanding we have of, of the mastery of the thing that we're doing, you know, or, and that we're, and we're able to, um, play forward versus just (laughs) constantly, you know, fixing from the past, you know, uh, because we're getting better and better and better. And, but so I think, uh, and you said every process can be more efficient and more effective. You're absolutely correct. I I don't think that would ever go away in any time ever. It won't. A process will always be with us. And some people will say, well, it's people, not process. If you have the best people, process doesn't matter. Others feel like, no, no, you, create the perfect process and then the people aren't as important. And uh, both of those, again, are kind of specious arguments. At the end of the day, it's people and process. Absolutely. If you have a great process, you standardize it on the greatness so that everybody does it the same way. To the extent you can mechanize it, you do that because it makes it more robust and you address it with terrific people, man, now you've got an enterprise that's absolutely going to kill for you. Yeah, uh, and it's something that uh, really, in more recent years, have I have I really embraced the the love of it. Um, I think I just didn't love on it hard enough, <laughs> you know. But but you're you're absolutely right, and I and I found that um, operations and and processes and systems, the people they fascinate me. Um, and anytime I've surrounded myself by them, I said, "You drive this lane so hard, you're it. You do it so well." Um, don't ever let anybody distract you out of that because these things are so needed and watching them flourish is, is, is fantastic because they're, because they are so process oriented thinking, you know, and, and, and systems engineering type of a deal. So it's, it's quite fascinating to watch, but, um, well, everything is process. Yeah. Uh, and generally cross-functional, even Hmm. issuing a payroll check. That's true. And you look at, well, it's not just issuing a check because, the HR guys have to do stuff. Each of the functions that are having to say it's correct have to do something. The finance guys need to do something. It's a cross-functional process also. And the two biggest 
processes, the most complicated ones that any organization has to work with are one, order to delivery or order to cash, if you want. The second is the development of new products or new services. Mm. They are, both of those are complex, multifunctional, and probably the most critical ones to do well if you're going to be successful in a company or an organization. Well said. <laughs> that's about, that's that. I mean, your ability to um, from start of a product to its customer and everything in between uh, is uh, like as you mentioned, multifunctional and, and multi-department and and complicated. Very, <laughs> very. But but I mean, if to your point. The more you understand all of the people involved in all the processes and all the handoffs and, and um, what happens from step to step to step, uh, the easier over time to constantly refine it because you know you have a fine-tuned system that you're just, now it's a matter of this seems to be working, how can we make it better? But if you don't have something yep. in place, you don't even know what you have to make better. <laughs> so, yep. You know. Yep. A absolutely right. This is you in fact, there's this series of charts that I include in the process chapter. I didn't make it up, but I really like it. And it shows the process as you think it is. We'll say that's 10 steps. The process that you wish it was, <laughs> we'll say that's six steps. And then the process as it actually is, which is about 21 steps. And so it's true. just amazing what a lack of understanding generally exists amongst leaders about the process their people are working with. Mm. Amen. You know, I, I think it's um, they're so quick to uh, either give orders or their opinions, but have they actually dissected the work that is involved with it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely correct. And that the best thing I found, and I go through some of this in the book, is you just kind of put somebody there and they just start walking the process step by step and at every step when they you ask, somebody says well this is what I do and you say well okay well what happens when it doesn't work that way and then you find all these rework loops and then pick whatever it is you're doing pick 30 that have gone through in the past year and just trace it through all those steps to see did it work that way and you don't need process consultants. You don't right. <laughs> need IT types. You just kind of have somebody who can follow a process and inch their way along. And it is remarkable what you find. I, you know, I love the fact that if you think about it, it always goes back to just human behavior. If you can just slow down. <laughs> take a step yeah. back and like, let's just retrace our steps and see how we got here. And we'll see what we find along the way and where we can find some possible solutions in that. You know, cut out all the noise and all the distractions and all the drama and who said this, he said that, she said that. It's yeah. her fault, it's his fault. It's like, all right, let's just take a little journey. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and that's exactly right. And it's, you know, it's easy to get caught on, I guess, two ends of the spectrum. One is the analysis paralysis. Yeah, of course. And the other is uh, what I refer to as all buttholes and elbows when you just try to action things right away and you know we're going to get in there and fix this and 
you haven't really taken the time to figure out what the hell it is you're fixing. <laughs> and true. You want to find that sweet spot that I didn't make up this phrase, but I always liked it. It's a Japanese one that says, go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. Yes. Go slow to do the design work, to truly understand what the hell you're doing, then go like hell. I had found uh, in more recent years from both meditation and slowing down in general that everything else in my life started speeding up uh, uh clearer decision making in less time more intentional uh more i could see the bigger picture i can make execute better decisions in, in a much faster time uh well not faster time but in 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 that within that time of the day you know and remarkable about what slowing down does really for speeding up so many other areas, both in business and life. It's fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm probably the last person on this earth that you will ever find meditating about anything. Cause I can't, I can't do anything uh, that I can't be still that long, but in general, I'm always going to agree with uh, whether it's a blue book exercise or the take the work to do process, whatever, you got to take the time to understand it. The, the time spent on design, intelligent design, not to the point of analysis paralysis, but really take the time to design your implementation process, mm -hmm. your new process, your new product, your new service. Man, that's not wasted time. No, you're absolutely right. And and taking those extra steps, I, again, embracing the journey, embracing the process, I think is it's worth so much in that long game. Uh, and by the way, full transparency, I'm not one of those, let me sit in silence, oh, meditators. So for the audience, I don't want to ever portray myself as, I, because my mind goes like a million miles an hour. Um, I, I you know, meditative in terms of um, sort of like what you're doing when you're blueprinting. I'm uh, you're in your book, in your book, you're, you're writing. Things. Uh, I got you. Yeah, yeah I, I'll use um, I'll 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 either do something guided so I can actually tap into checking in like. How did I make on those decisions? What could I have done better? What could I, you know, I think you were already saying it. You take a yeah. half a day uh, to to think. And I think that that's phenomenal advice, by the way, for anybody taking a half a day or a day you know, during that time period. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy to do. No. First of all, to carve out the time. Yes. And the second is to actually do it because it's a little bit painful. Mm. It's <laughs> you know, very painful at first. <laughs> yeah, if you're predisposed, uh, got to be doing something, got to be moving and shaking, it's kind of tough to say, nah, I'm just going to sit and think. That's not so easy. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, and I mentioned this on several podcasts or or maybe some uh, some lives online, but I, I was studying what some... Uh, leaders do and some of the the neuroscience behind you know what they're doing between 5 and 8 a.m and it was it was really interesting to find that those that get up very early and are setting their day up to run the marathon versus those that get up like you know 20 minutes before they got to be at work or wherever they or wherever they got to be they're waking up back into they're waking up into a loop of decision making that they're only making decisions based on everything that has happened up until today those that get up earlier, who mobility and movement to meditation or prayer, or gratitude or, or, you know, writing in the journal or just, you know, thinking, taking time for themselves first that that time, which, by the way, is not easy at first, as you <laughs> mentioned. Um, but they're they're actually now moving forward because they're they're they didn't wake up into a loop. They woke up and now they're kind of creating forward 
forward leaning in future um, versus just kind of waking up into a loop of do, 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 do constantly going, you know? Yeah. I'd so. say there's probably a number of different ways to do it. Uh, unfortunately, I was one of those people who I would wake up and 15 minutes later was <laughs> in the car and heading to heading to work. So I'd say there's probably a number of different ways to do it. You're the the right. trick is figure out what works for you. So true. But find a way to do that. Uh, you know, just find a way, w- whether it's the way I did it, the 5.30 in the morning thing, giving yourself two hours in the weekend in, a, in the pool. I mean, whatever it is, yeah. find a way to do it that works for you. And I like that because, I, um, you know, you hear all these different um, – Somebody asked me recently, I was, I was doing a talk and they said like, oh, you know, so do you deviate, you know, ever from your schedule? I said every single day. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the woman appreciated the honesty. I was like, no, no. I was like, I, I, I'm like, I'm constantly the creator figuring out, you know, the, it's just that I'm taking the time each day to actually figure out like, hey, does this work for me? And if not, how can I tweak it? I was like, I told the, I told the audience, I said, just show yourself some grace along the way. I'm like, you're trying to figure out what works for you. And there's a million books and a million different ways to do things. And who am I to say that this is the way you got to just take bits and pieces and try them to see what works. But you definitely, to your point, you definitely have to find that time for yourself or that, that outlet or whatever it might be to get you into that mode. So couldn't agree more. Absolutely. What, uh, what else do you have going on right now? So you've got the book out. What, what else is going on with you? Well, I'm uh, the executive chairman of a company that I've got a, decent ownership stake in called Vertive Holdings. Mm-hmm. You probably saw or may have seen that we did a, I did a SPAC about um, almost two years ago now, raised a bunch of money and we merged with this uh, company Vertive, which I absolutely love because it's uh, the way I described it was this is Honeywell at about the second or third year point. They've done a lot of the foundational work and now there's a lot of upside ahead of us. And I love it because uh, it's got all the things that I always liked. It's got a great position in a good industry because we provide uh, thermal management and um, energy management systems for data centers, mm. which you might imagine is yep. a pretty hot item uh, right now. And I have Very. a hard time envisioning 20 years from now, it's still not being a hot item. And we also develop what are called edge devices. And you think about that as uh, if you want to reduce latency, the speed or response that you get on your computer, whether Mm -hmm. it's the TV you're trying to get, the gaming you're doing, trying to get coupons to people in a food aisle at the right time, compute power has to be closer to the action. You can't send it all back to Finland and uh, because it's an inexpensive place for a data center. Uh, big opportunity to differentiate with technology, which I always like. We um, are spending, I'd say, an okay amount on R&D and the opportunity to do the same thing that we did at Honeywell exists here. The implementation of uh, what we're calling now the Vertive operating system, and again, think of it as mostly the Toyota production system applied to our plants, is big. So, and I've got a great team, the CEO and the team that we've got there are terrific. So I'm pretty excited about this thing. And I think some people think it's a little pathetic, but I like working 
Oh no, 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 no! I could. I don't think you'll ever stop. I, I, my family's always been the same way. I'm always been the same way. I, I, I like, I like the mind, actively pursuing and doing and creating and developing, <laughs> you know, and solving. I, I don't think it'll ever stop. I really don't. I, I well, you know what? Uh, this is going to make it sound like I'm more erudite than I really am, but I read. Um, Cicero's book on uh, or his treatise on aging mm. a couple days ago and remember this is written 2000 years yeah. ago and one of his big points is the importance of keeping your mind engaged no matter how old you are yes it was true 2000 years ago and it's true today yes that's uh you know why you see um when there's a lot of people who do retire <laughs> and do nothing <laughs> there's a few studies on what happens there too and then within the five years after they retire but we'll, we'll leave that yeah. off <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't intend to be in that category no not ever but i mean but it doesn't you don't strike me as that that would ever even be an option because of how of just how much you'd like to be involved in and in creating and building so um, where can everybody find out about you, find out about the book, find out about anything, you know, anything and everything. How can they get in touch with you or, or, or learn more about, uh, or read the book? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, okay. so that's, uh, an easy place to find yes. me. And the book can be pre-ordered on Amazon. It comes out, uh, June 30th. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty excited about it. It's, not a life story or anything. This is more of a, so how do you actually how do you actually create something that's gonna do great and last for a long time? This is a blueprint. So, <laughs> it's a manifesto. I'm sorry? I said this is like a blueprint, a manifesto, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> you should be excited. <laughs> now, I, I actually feel uh, uh, pr pretty good about it. So uh, I'm hoping everybody feels the same way. I guess I'll find out in a few months. Oh, excellent. Uh, really, you know, looking forward to that. And then uh, as I tell all of our guests, it's a journey-driven podcast, so you're welcome back on anytime. We can tackle a whole other set of issues. I know you've got stories <laughs> for for months, so you know whatever. Listen, we can you can you can say anything that you want on here. It's not me I'm worried about. <laughs> so whatever, so whatever you want to you know go go in any direction, you're welcome back on anytime. We can take it in any direction you want. Uh, you know, and I and I truly respect and appreciate your work, your background, your your history, and just everything that you've done for business culture. I think it's it's um, phenomenal, and I'm grateful. Thank you. Well, you're very kind, Matt, and I got to say it's been a very enjoyable hour or so here. Yeah, yeah, we're we're doing great. We're at about an hour and fifteen. We're crushing it on time. <laughs> so, uh, luckily, I had got some time before the next one. But I, you know, I want to say thank you. Um, stay, stay. Uh, um, uh, connected here for a minute. I'm gonna I'll jump offline here with you in a second, but uh, just want to thank you and and for everybody listening. Uh, David Cody, uh, phenomenal background. Uh, winning now, winning later. It's coming out in June, so be sure just mark it down. Uh, and of course, you can you know find him on LinkedIn. Uh, 
C-O-T-E, David Cody, C-O-T-E. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, he's exe- executive chairman of Vertive Holdings, which he just talked a little bit about. Uh, he's a former CEO of Honeywell. You can't miss that one. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, and as I mentioned, an author of, of his new book. Uh, but uh, a lot of what he talks about is what we have been preaching, <laughs> just yeah. not to his level of experience. But, uh, but we've been talking a lot about that on this podcast over the years. Um, and these, the, these types of things are the blueprint that can also help alleviate some of the, the more emotional side, I think, that comes out in business when it's really not meant to be that, but more of the, the functional and the intentional and the um, you know, customer-centric and community-centric and culture-centric that really is what it's more about, right? So please be sure to check him out uh, on LinkedIn and the book. Uh, you know, appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, thank you again for that past surpassing 4 million downloads. We, we appreciate it. And, you know, it's just another, uh, another part of the journey. Uh, and I look forward to the next 40 plus million or whatever it is. I'm having too much fun doing it. And, uh, so I appreciate each and every one of you. Oh, and also thank you all for listening. Uh, and for also leaving the ratings and reviews. It means a lot. Uh, apparently Apple does use that for making recommendations. So (laughs) it's always appreciated. Feel free to please leave us a rating and review or just reach out to me. If you've got any critique, I'm always happy to listen. And, uh, for our guest, David Cody, for myself, Matt Gottesman and for Hustle Sold Separately, we're out.